Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, a series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalina Hai, and some very special guests as we explore the pressing question of how we can support one another to envision and create a more flourishing future for all. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalinahigh.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalinahigh.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In today's conversation, I have the treat of speaking with Anthea Lawson, a campaigner and writer whose powerful book, The Entangled Activist, is essential reading for anyone interested in how we might change the world in a more meaningful, integrative way. Having trained and worked as a reporter at The Times and studied history at Cambridge, Anthea's work as an activist has seen her campaign to shut down tax havens, control the arms trade, and prevent banks from facilitating corruption and environmental devastation. While working at Global Witness, a human rights and environmental organisation, Anthea also launched a campaign that succeeded in changing the rules on secret company ownership, resulting in new laws being passed in dozens of countries around the world. Anthea is one of those gems whose rich experience, brilliant mind and grounded presence make for an inspiring and refreshing guide to the hardest challenges we face. I came across her work through the renegade economist and friend of the podcast, Della Duncan, to whom I am very grateful for the introduction. And I have to say that while I don't consider myself an activist per se, this book is one of the most deeply affecting, empowering and illuminating that I have read in a very long time. From mapping out the self-righteous, saviour-complex dynamics that arise from our unmet needs, to challenging the extractivist, power-over-patterns so many of us have inherited from colonial pasts, the entangled activist reveals how we can end up recreating the very problems we seek to fix, and it offers a beautiful roadmap as to how we might rise to the challenge differently. This was one of my favourite conversations of the season, and I hope you find it as inspiring as I did. Anthea, thank you so much for joining on the show today. I'm very excited for this conversation. Yes, me too. Thanks very much for having me. So I've just finished reading your brilliant book, The Entangled Activist, which you kindly sent through. Um, which I would not have picked up because I don't consider myself an activist. And I'm so glad that you did send it because it's one of the best books I've read, hands down. And I don't say that lightly. Um, and for those of you listening, to give you a very quick pricey, it's about our deep entanglement with the world and its systems and our place within it. It looks at the shadow sides of how we show up perhaps unconsciously with all of the baggage and what we can do about that. Anyway, it's about stories and power and trauma and lots of good stuff. And it's very uplifting. And your voice is so refreshing. And I really, really took a lot from it. It's completely underlined from start to finish. So before we dive into what your focus is right now, which is where I'd like to start the conversation, I kind of want to 
preamble in your words about what this book is about and why you wrote it before we dive into the meat of the conversation. Okay, well, thanks for what you said about it. That's really, it's lovely hearing from readers. Um, It's a very strange process. I'd always done jobs before that, you know, I was a campaigner working for NGOs and I was a journalist before that. I was sort of out in the world talking to people and then the process of actually sitting at a desk for a year um, and then and then putting this thing out and then waiting to hear what people think is completely nerve-wracking. So thanks. <laughs> it's about why we uh, can't assume that we're separate from the problem that we're trying to fix when we go out to try and change the world. Mm. Um, now, that sounds a bit funny, doesn't it? But I think there's this underlying feeling that we have when we go and try and change things. Uh, whether we call ourselves an activist or a campaigner or not, and not everyone does, there's issues around that, which we might come to later. Um, we've got this idea that, you know, it's even in the grammar of that phrase, we're changing the world. The world is over there mm. and we're here um, and we see the problems over there and we don't really want to associate ourselves with the problem. Um, and so I wanted to I wanted to look at that and I, and I came to it because I'd as I said, I've been working as a campaigner for a long time, and I was starting to notice that in multiple ways, we were recreating through our own ways of doing things, some of the problems that we were trying to solve. You know, one classic thing that happens is you end up sort of using market methods and Mm -hmm. frames and ways of thinking about things uh, to try and uh, improve problems that are caused by a market system allowed to run riot with mm. no controls on it um, and the impacts that that causes for injustice and inequality. Uh, or, I mean, we see this a lot, um, just sort of like looking at the world at the moment. Uh, we see people who are um, active uh, defending the rights of other people um, and yet they're doing so in a way that denies the humanity of the people they're talking to. Mm. Mm. Um, there's this feeling of superiority and righteousness that comes up when we sort of go into battle. Um, and, and then look, let's look at that metaphor. The word campaign is, is a military term. That's where it comes from. Um, so I became very curious about that. And I, you know, I was, you know, working as a, you know, running campaigns and a human rights and environmental organization and and it sort of became a bit of a a joke that in meetings I was always the one going oh for god's sake that's another military metaphor you just used there um you know we were doing sort of bingo and sort of noticing them but I I became very curious about it I thought there was something more to it so yeah so I interviewed um I interviewed dozens of activists um because I wanted to know if they had the same questions about what we were doing as I did and in different ways people did and I reflected on my own experiences. And I, and I did a lot of reading as well. Um, I mean, I looked into the social movement literature, which is what uh, academics call it when they're studying how activism works. Um, and I also read into psychoanalytic thinking because what I really wanted to do is, is get below, uh, below the surface of what was going on, what is going on when we're trying to change the world. Because I, I felt there was something about our inner lives um, often goes missing when we're out there trying to change policies and trying to change these very practical things that we can see are wrong with the world. It's interesting, isn't it? I think when we're thinking about ways in which to change or change the world, again, with the language used there, and you talk about this in your, in your book about sort of the relentless activity that we tend to fall into, and you talk about it in terms of trauma patterns but or defence mechanisms, but I think also the the fact that 
technology has developed at such a pace and continues to develop at such a pace that we feel like there is such a freneticism that demands a rapid response that means that we rarely have time to look inwards, that we're constantly reacting as opposed to contemplating. And I'm talking slightly in general terms here, of course, but one of the things I found so refreshing about your book is that it really does take a moment to pause into at depth many of the unseen underground roots of the outward-facing behaviours we engage in, of the language we use, of the tactics we engage in, and the othering, both of ourselves and of other people. And so I wonder, I kind of want to loop it back to a question that I'm hoping will thread throughout this particular season. With the work that you're doing, with your book now out, and we're going to dive into some of the themes of the book in a moment, if you're thinking about ways in which we can empower people to both envision a different, more flourishing future and then work towards creating it, where is your focus right now? There's so many things I want to say about the things you were just <laughs> saying there, actually, about technology as well. But let me, let me answer the question as well. I'm deepening this inquiry. I'm with the same questions. And I've realised, well, I was about to say I'm not done with them, but I think more accurately, I don't think they're done with me. You know, like there's a reason that we are drawn to the thing, you know, if, if, if we're really follow, following a sort of values path and we're really following a, our sort of soul's path, I think there are reasons that each of us is drawn to the things that we're drawn to. Hmm. Um, and so I think there are entanglements of my own, you know, which I started writing about in, in this first book, um, that have still got hold of me. So I haven't let go of these questions yet. And, and so, yes, yeah, so I think what I'm saying is I can see there's further, further to go with them. And I think some of my own development, you know, as a person at, and as an activist, and those two things are pretty much intertwined for me, um, is, in, is in these questions. So the way I'm thinking about it at the moment is there's, I feel like there's a, there's a script. It's like there's a, an unconscious societal script that we've got mm. around uh, activism or change making. You know, I don't yet know if this metaphor works. I don't know if I'll run with this in, in what I write next. But it, it's you know, it's got a bunch of stage directions. It's got it's got a bunch of like without getting too tangled up in the metaphor. It's got a bunch of assumptions in it about who we are and what it is we're doing. So I'm interested in like images that keep coming up at the moment are are about control. And, and what it is we're trying to do when we're, when we're trying to change other people. Hmm. And can we actually change other people at all? You know, there are, from plenty of sort of traditions and directions, you know, you could come at it from a Buddhist tradition, um, or you could come at it from a sort of psychotherapy approach. You could come at it from, like, how teachers look at how you get children to understand things, or educators generally, how you get people to understand things. And, and from a parenting perspective, which is where, you know, I, I'm drawing on the practice I'm engaged in daily with my own small kids. Um, like, how much can we, how much can we, any of us, change other people? I don't think we can. And yet there's a, there's a huge set of assumptions about that that underpin a lot of activism that is done. Mm. And to say that, to get into these kind of quite deep questions about how we, um, how we engage with each other as humans how we engage with, with anyone who is not ourselves or anything who's not ourselves. You know, that's all very well. And, and also, we've got these very, very practical, practically manifesting, materially really manifesting problems in the world 
of injustice, of a turn towards authoritarianism, um, of a turn to the right, of a resurgent far right, um, all against a um, background of ecological and climate. Um, let's call it emergency for now, because that's just that, that that's just so big. It's this sort of relentless drumbeat of it, and and the feeling of urgency that comes with that. And so those two things, those it does feel that as soon as you go into how do we really change anything, you get into these very deep questions, and yet there is this remaining urgency and practicality of of facing up to the difficulty and also doing things. And so I'm looking at these questions and also trying to stay active and, and practicing them in the things that I'm doing to stay active and trying to find a way to trying to find a way to bring them together because that's where people are. You know, where people are, if they're feeling something about, oh, I need to do things to help change the world, um, they're usually there with a feeling of urgency. Um, and, and that feels, that feels panicky. It's, it can be a sort of a, it's an aroused nervous system state. It moves us into the kind of fight flight functioning, which, you know, arguably runs a lot of the culture. But when we get into that personally, it's not a good place. I mean, to act from at all, let alone to look at these deep questions. So there's, there's a bunch of, uh, paradoxes here that I'm, I feel like I'm sort of balancing on a number of tightropes, really in trying to think about this. It's interesting, you know, when we're talking about change and changing others and changing ourselves, one of the things I think is in our power to do is ways in which we can engage with other people to help them connect with themselves to feel like difference is possible. Because I think one of the main barriers is perhaps a sense of apathy that comes from feeling overwhelmed or feeling like the system is too complex, too big, there's so much disinformation, there's so much data, like there's, there's too much for us to conceive of, really, and manage. And so I think, in some ways, and I've been thinking about this a lot recently, like the role of art, or music, or ritual, or, you know, sitting with a book like yours that has these passages where you just think, there's something that that's unlocked or moved in me, that makes me feel like I want to come at this from a place of longing, from a place of meaning making, a place of storytelling, which can be there alongside the sense of urgency, but has a deeper quality to it. And it's a sense that I think of, of giving people a sense of their own weight in the world, that people are not individually meaningless in the face of such a big problem. There's got to be a way to give people a sense of their mattering. And I think that's maybe also what's been lost, is that when we're trying to keep up with everything and the problems are so large, we can think, well, what on earth could I possibly do? And the people that are making the changes are finding ways to team up with others to be able to make larger waves. So I don't know if there's a specific point, but I think the thing that I'm thinking of is unlocking potential in others, moving them so that they feel they have agency, so they can choose what change to make for themselves as opposed to directing that change by giving them a roadmap or saying you should be doing this or that. Yeah, this is really interesting. I feel like I'm having lots of conversations with people at the moment who are doing work that a few years ago I wouldn't have considered to be activism because we have this you know we have this sort of set of ideas about what constitute there's there's a real hierarchy and it's a sort of hierarchy of hardness really <laughs> it's like you know if you're sort of out in the road um you know potentially breaking the law that's like the hardest version of it like it's it, there's, there's this quite macho hierarchy really um of, of what counts which I've really you know, and I, I was sitting at a desk doing things, kind of doing investigations into, you know, dirty money trails and things like that. Um, 
sometimes sort of running sort of undercover investigations into what was going on in tax havens and illegal logging and things like that. So that felt quite sort of tough as well. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so now I'm I'm meeting people who who are doing really really exciting work that doesn't look anything like what I used to think activism was, but it's often facilitative. Um, it's often in groups. They're working with communities, with groups of people, with companies. You know, whatever it is finding ways to exactly as you were saying get people to perceive and feel their own agency and their own imagination that they can go and do stuff whatever it is on whatever scale whatever is appropriate for their skills their way of being in the world you know the the time and availability that they've got which for a lot of people is limited Mm. and there's some really really exciting work going on there and when when I started sort of opening my eyes to like this much wider sense of what constitutes change making um, than how I used to see it, you know, like the world just sort of lit up. You know, there are so many people doing this kind of work. If, if I was to say, oh, that, that is what is more important, you know, rather than the other thing, I, th- I think that's bullshit because I think we're just once more getting into the kind of binary making sort of tendencies um, of the culture we're in where it's like, what's in, what's out, what's good, what's not, what's best, what's not. Um, it's nonsense. There's a, there's, there's a role for all of it. There, there's, there is such a thing as movement ecology. Um, you know, there's, there's a place for all of these actions. I find Joanna Macy's work quite helpful on this because she divides what she calls the great turning, which is what we need to do to move ourselves into an ecologically sane and just way of living. She divides it into three sort of pillars. Like, and the first pillar is the great protesting no the great stop it now um, of kind of protesting activism, um, which a lot of people think that's what, you know, if, 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 I, if I don't feel like doing that, then I can't, I can't do anything to help. And that's not the case because pillar two is building all of these other, all of these other alternatives and in communities up and down the land and all over the world, people are doing things to make their communities more resilient, more pleasant to be in, uh, less unequal, kinder places. People are doing all of that work. Um, and that's part of it. And then, and then pillar three, as she understands it, is the psycho-spiritual underpinning. Um, it's the, it's the sort of deep thinking and work about how we, how we show up in the world, um, and what guides us, um, and how we how we connect to a ground of our being that is that is bigger than ourselves, which some people are comfortable to talk about in spiritual or religious terms, and some people are completely allergic to that, and that's fine. Um, but everyone has their own way of understanding what that what that bigger picture stuff is, that we are not atomized, discrete individuals um, in a sort of mechanistic universe. There is, there is something else going on um, and it's about tapping into that. And one of the things, one of the quotes that I love in your book that really struck me that connects with that, you say, the crisis is that we no longer know how to relate to the world around us and to feel that we have a meaningful place in it. We don't know what our purpose is or where we belong. And then you talk about modernity's disenchanting of the world, such beautiful language, Um, and that it began with a Copernican revolution and accelerated with the death of God through the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution. And I just want to add another quote, which is on that same page. And you say, in this alienated context, our need for meaning has been cleverly co-opted and fulfilled by consumer capitalism and its endless quest for growth. And this is part of what activists are reacting against when we become activists. I really want to unpack that a bit because it's so rich because I think there's a lot of 
stuff in there around relationship, around sense of identity and connection, belonging, systems that then kind of have been designed to satiate that deeper need, but really doesn't even hit the sides. Um, but I kind of want to just throw that to you as an open ground to pull out the elements that you feel moved to pull out because you've got so much interesting stuff to say about this. Yeah, it's funny. As you were reading that back to me, I suddenly had this memory of reading a book that really influenced me on this by there's an American investigative journalist called Barbara Ehrenreich who's been writing since the 70s at least she's she's really fantastic um you know she she you know she's done interesting things like sort of going undercover and sort of living on the breadline you know for a year to you know like really report um in a way that a lot of journalists don't do but she wrote a book called dance what was it called dancing in the streets a history of collective joy hmm. and it and and she was tracking sort of through a sort of long history um how our sort of capacity and ability to um yeah sort of to express ourselves joyfully in company yeah. um was slowly constrained by sort of social and economic sort of historical developments yeah I really recommend it it was sort of that feeling that was in the back of my mind this this do you know I think it, when I started work you know I was working in London I was it was a bit easier 25 years ago when I started work because rents weren't so high um so you didn't have to pay all of your small salary on rent like people do now um but I was doing this job that you know I was definitely wanting to be doing but I wasn't sort of doing anything else outside of it. Mm. And there was just this, there was this feeling of, hold on, is this, is this it? And I think a lot, I think a lot of people have that, you know, and you can, you can go shopping and spend whatever is left of your money. Um, if there's anything left after paying the bills and, and work doesn't leave enough time to do the other things. And, and there's a whole, you know, now, you know, that was pre that's sort of late nineties, pre the kind of internet that we have now. And, you know, now there's even more that we can use to sort of fill ourselves up that isn't quite a real engagement with things. Anyway, the point is, you know, we've got a system that has, is leaving people very little space to, to find meaning now. Um, and some people would say it's all about the death of religion um, because, you know, the, the organised religious processes that, you know, my you know, my family was taking part in until a generation and a half ago. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's really changed. That, that was doing it for some people. That all these things have happened. Um, but that, that lack of meaning is, is really key because actually that meaning gets fulfilled in other ways too. It's not just consumerism that's fe feeding, feeding uh, our sort of yearning for meaning. There are, there are other forces that want to feed it too. Um, and in the age we've got now of the way that social media works and the way that um, more malign forces, I'm thinking about the far right and their tropes and the, the rise in online misogyny and racism and hatred um, and the draw that has got, all of that, all of that content is, is appealing it's feeding that that lack of meaning that's in lots of people's lives. Anyway, you know this this is this is the context we're in. Um, I mean, I was writing about it there to, in the context of uh, talking about us sort of sometimes overdoing it. We're so sort of as activists because we're so sort of desperate for we're so desperate for it. We're so hungry and so thirsty. Um, you know, I was thinking at that point of writing that of the the reasons that we can burn out. We kind of 
I've done it. I've seen other people do it. We hurl ourselves into it um, and, and we overcook it slightly because we're bringing this kind of desperate need, which is not to say, of course, we shouldn't be doing it. Um, it is a really wonderful way to kind of restore a sense of community and, and some of what's missing. Like what, what's better? And there have been, there've been movements that have really, that have really harnessed that, like the transition movement, um, which is about people getting together in local communities and developing together developing ways to make make things more resilient you know through food or transport or whatever it is locally that's people getting together doing stuff it feels good Mm -hmm. so I think something else that you mentioned in the mix there about burnout one of the things I think is revolutionary and I don't want to use that term too lightly but is the idea of rest you know this idea of rest is something which is necessary for us to be able to thrive And usually when we talk about rest, we don't actually mean rest. We mean taking a weekend here or there, taking a couple of weeks holiday, maybe in the summer, or if you've got kids taking a prolonged break, if you're lucky in the sun, if you can get away. There's a lady that I follow, Octavia Rahim, who writes a lot about rest. She works primarily with black women, working with yoga and helping to embody oneself and connect with your body so that you can work through transgenerational trauma trauma that they've experienced in their lives. And I think one of the things that I find so inspiring about her work is that rest is something which is absolutely fundamental. She's changing our perspective around what it means to pay attention and drop in and find embodied ways to integrate some of the, I mean, some of it, I guess, touches on the shadow work that you talk about, of of looking at what it is that is maybe unspoken or not visible that's an unmet need that comes from crisis we've experienced or whatever it might be and find a way to relate to that so that it doesn't end up taking the reins and directing our lives in ways that were perhaps unanticipated or not that healthy for us. I'm kind of, I don't know if she talks about that specifically in her work, but the sense of rest being a revolutionary act and absolutely fundamental to the shifting of systems. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that because you do talk about, and it comes back to the freeze well, not so much a freeze, but a fight-flight kind of response, where we have this urgency around us all the time. How do we unhook ourselves from that? Yeah. I mean, it, it's there, isn't it, in what you just said. The very, the very idea that the idea of rest is revolutionary mm. tells us all we need to know <laughs> about the unhealth of our culture, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that extraordinary that something so fundamental to our functioning as animal beings, you know, we have a nervous system that moves naturally in and out of arousal and resting states. And we've created a culture that basically doesn't allow us to spend long enough in the resting states to function healthily um, with all of the consequences for our, for our mental and physical health. I mean, it's com- it, it's completely crazy, isn't it? So, I mean, there's a few things to say here. One is, so one is that I was looking, burnout is a big topic in activist circles. And I, in the, in the interviews I did with people who don't want to be activists, because I was curious <laughs> and I remain curious about what it is that stops people wanting to be activists. And I'm, you know, really the hypothesis is there's something about activism that makes people not want to be activists. And something that quite a few people said is, you know, I sense the futility. I sense I'll just burn out and I won't be able to do anything. So the fear works from outside and keeping people out as well as sort of destroying people inside. E- everyone knows people who've burnt out if they haven't done it themselves. It's a, it's a regular pattern. And, and here we have 
us bringing all of the ways that we function in a culture that usually invisibly is working on us to direct, you know, we don't, we don't see that as the problem. We don't see capitalist uh, sort of Protestant work ethic, you know, take your tradition and the guilt that comes with it. Um, we don't see that kind of busyness as the problem. Yeah. We just think it's one of the, you know, things that sort of arises. But actually it's, it's at the root of the problem because that's what generates the endless quest for economic growth and productivity, you know, so that people can accumulate. And this is how capitalism works. Mm. Of course, there's no rest in that. But then that brings us to the, to the other side of it. It's no coincidence that the people doing the most radical uh, and revolutionary uh, and powerful thinking on rest and its revolutionary potential are black women. Um, I've been following Trisha Hersey, who set up uh, a project called the Nap Ministry, which is exactly, which is, it, it sounds very similar to, to what you were talking about mm. um, with Octavia Rahim, which, which is this, like the people who have been most extracted from, mm. Mm. whose rest has been most denied um, are making the most powerful points about what rest actually needs to involve. And, and this then gets complicated, doesn't it? Because it's not for people who've been living in white comfort and class privilege to simply appropriate and extract from this and say yeah 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 we all need to rest exactly the same because actually perhaps the people who've most been most extracted from um yes they need to rest more and perhaps that needs to be facilitated by people who have been able to rest more historically mm. which is people in privilege stepping up a bit uh stepping up um into um anti-racist work and anti-capitalist work that I don't know if we're comfortable talking anti anti-capitalist terms on your podcast, um, but you know, work that is going to actually make a difference ultimately um, to how to how we can function and how we can how we can survive. Um, and still, you also have people who are going into that work. You know, people who've been going into it from a position of privilege, still burning themselves out because, of course, they're generating the patterns that are that are in the culture. So all that's all that's going on when we're talking about burnout. And I think also one of the one of the challenges especially right now is navigating navigating that very complex territory of saying, you know, if there are people and there are many people who see the inequality, who know that the system really disadvantages a lot of people and they want to make the change around it. But there's also a reluctance and you know I've talked about this, you know, in previous conversations, but the sense of how do I show up and make change that empowers the people who have been most disenfranchised, exploited. So you're supporting them in their work. And you talk about decoloniality in the book. So in a way that is not power over, or I'm telling you how to do this, or you know, not perpetuating the systemic issues that have been so um, harmful, but also getting past that personal barrier, or maybe not past, maybe finding ways to navigate the personal barrier of you know, I don't want to get involved in this because I might fuck it up. I might be silenced. I might be saying the wrong thing. I might cause offence. And it, this is a topic that I, I've been talking a lot about with um, a friend of mine, Dr. Naima Pasha, who's a brilliant thinker. And she was talking about this in terms of the equity effect, a paper that she wrote, which looks at race equity in business and how those businesses that have greater diversity, equity and inclusion practices baked into their business outperform those that don't by 58%. So the question is, Obviously, we know that making 
systems, even if it's just within a business system, places where people can flourish no matter their race, no matter their age, no matter their gender identity, sexual preference, ability, neurodiversity, and the list goes on. Making places that people can flourish, whoever they are, is going to be good for the microcosm of business. And I would say, the, you know, the macrocosm of society. So then how do we get people to a place, as she was saying, where we make these difficult discussions more possible and we can listen more and also speak up and voice what we care about without fear that we'll cause more damage? It's such, it's such a difficult thing to navigate is my sense and maybe who needs to lead that conversation what are your thoughts around that um there's a lot I'm not expert on here because I think in many ways the people who have experienced it need to be leading this conversation Mm -hmm. um where I where I was exploring in in looking at my own activism and the kind of activism I'd been in which which I realized to my horror when I looked at it properly uh, was kind of imbued with saviour feelings, which are inherent in a culture. I'm talking about the UK, which has a crashing imperial hangover yeah, yeah. Um, and has categorically not done the work. We have not done the work to decolonise our own collective psyche in Britain, and, it, and it's playing out in the public sphere in, in multiple ways, not including but not limited to, um, you know, middle-aged white men exploding on the news with regular, um, as a regular thing when confronted with having to contemplate the idea that the British Empire was not a totally great thing. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it's extraordinary, actually, what, what, what's going on. And, and it's also not extraordinary because we haven't done the work. Mm. So the point is... What happens when we go into uh, our activism, you know, whatever the activity is, without having considered our own entanglements and our own sort of positionality in it and our own stuff and what we're bringing to it? Because that's really what I'm encouraging people to do. Look at your own stuff. Um, Is we centre ourselves in this kind of unconscious way. We centre ourselves as as the saviour or as the person who's right or the person who gets it or the person who knows and of course we don't and we're not. And so we go crashing over other people's realities and sensibilities and feelings and, and we cause harm. Um, and that's, that's happening in a lot of places at the moment. It's happening in businesses. It's happening in big charities. There, there, there are massive problems going on in loads of the UK's charities at the moment um, with bullying and discrimination and so on amongst staff. Amongst, and, and, and it's so interesting in, in these charities because these are organisations full of people who think they're doing the right thing and who mm. think they're good. Mm. They're, they're such a kind of petri dish for kind of looking at what goes on here. And, and so there's a paradox. We have, to, we have to not make it about ourselves. Mm. And the only way to do that is we've got to look at ourselves. <laughs> we have got to look at some of our own stuff. Um, you can't just sort of declaratively state, oh, well, I'm doing this now. I'm, you know, I've read a bit of stuff and, and I've watched a couple of webinars. Um, like, we're not going to undo it in a couple of statements and we're certainly not going to undo it if, we, if we're not even thinking about it. So A, it's ongoing um, and B, we have got to look at what we're bringing and, and do so in a way that doesn't recenter all of our own shit, you know, which might involve like being a bit, a bit quieter um, on some things 
for a while until we've kind of worked it out and then worked out a bit and then, because we're not going to work it all out, and then try and engage differently. Um, you know, I had to really grapple with myself a bit about the basis on which I was writing about these questions in The Entangled Activist, because here I am, look, I'm white, I'm middle class, I'm middle-aged, um, I've, I've got plenty of privilege, and here I am, here I am talking about how we do activism. And what I came to was that I have a story to tell here, which is the story of a person from my kind of background um, coming to realise the ways in which we are multiply entangled in the problems we're trying to change, which includes um, these issues about privilege, and that it's worth speaking to share share my experiences of that, um, you know, but without claiming that is the way. Um, and this is, this is, this is what anyone, this is what anyone should do. The only, the only way to do it was to be sort of really honest, uh, and reflective about, about my own situation. That's where I've got to at the moment on this. It's an extraordinarily courageous thing to do actually to open up like that, especially when you're kind of holding up the mirror and then showing what lies behind the kind of persona that we bring into the world to say, these are the different things that I'm grappling with. I think one of the things that was interesting. I mean, there's so much that was interesting. In the book, you talk about everything from the personality or trait-based stuff that gets in the way when people are trying to do good or stepping up and leading a specific vision that they believe in, whether it's martyrdom or narcissism. But then there's also this, this other concept which you bring in, which I loved, when thinking about engaging in this kind of work while also doing the self-reflection and the deep work to kind of unpick some of our own entanglements, which is about looking beyond the dualist mindset is like the and both kind of idea, uh, which Thich Nhat Hanh talks about as interbeing. Anibal Kihano, who's a Peruvian sociologist that you write about, talking about it as intersubjectivity. And you talk about this as a defense against facing our vulnerability to unbearable feelings, like that we cut people off, we go into the sort of subject-object dualist mindset and we don't allow ourselves to experience that interbeing, that intersubjectivity, because maybe it's too painful so it strikes me when we're talking about doing this work, it has to be poised against, as you so beautifully write, this sense of connectedness, no, of, of being in relationship with or the Ubuntu idea of betweenness, that relationship happens and identity happens because of our interrelatedness with others and the living world. Yes, yes. And when, we, when we're within a culture that, doesn't, that isn't based on that, that isn't based on any of those ways of being or seeing the world and our relation to everyone and everything else that is. We can be so drawn to these ideas, and there is so much, there is so much draw to these ideas. You know, people are turning up to workshops and, and consuming books and, and listening to stuff. And, you know, it, it's we 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 sent as soon as we see there's another uh, way of being, we kind of sense it and we we so want it, um, yeah. you know, and there's this sort of ferment of talk and intellectual activity around it and how can we create it? <laughs> and it's funny that all that's going on because that's how, you know, in this kind of utterly deracinated, by which I mean like, you know, cut off from our roots kind of culture of whiteness, like we have to name whiteness here. That's at the heart mm. of a lot of this. Um, in this culture we're in, we kind of, that's what we do. We know how to do intellectual kind of, a, and, and talking and sort of that kind of processing activity about it. But 
raised in a culture where it's not the normative way of being, we usually haven't got a fucking clue how to do it. <laughs> um, you know, like it's, it's something that you do. I mean, it's not even about doing the, the very idea that you have to do it. It's about a way of being. And, and that comes right from how we are raised as children. Mm. I mean, this goes, this goes to how we are with babies and infants. It's about how we, um, it's about how we treat small children. Um, and so much of, um, what happens in parenting uh, goes against that. So much of then what happens in schooling goes against that, that by the time we sort of emerge into the world as adults, um, you know, we, we, are, we are cut off from our, you know, so we're cut off from our roots in multiple ways. It's not, I mean, people talk about, our, you know, we, we have, of course we've cut ourselves off from nature, but we've cut ourselves off from each other because we, we don't really know what it feels like to do this. Um, you know, and so there are communities and groups that, that practice it. You know, you can, you, can, you can go on workshops. There are people who, you know, get together in groups of people that try and practice it and that do practice it. There are spiritual communities that practice it. Um, there, are, there, are, there are ways to reach it um, and, there's, and there's guidance out there. But blimey, you know, it's the... <laughs> <laughs> thinking about how we do activism, it's like the deepest... It, it really struck me as like that's the deepest level at which... God, here we are. Like, no wonder we're recreating the same outcomes when we're coming at it in this, in this way of... It's about how we even speak with other people, how we engage with them. You know, we have this, this way of communicating that so often... And it's totally what's going on in the public sphere, um, in politics and in the media. It's just like debate, which is basically about win, kill and destroy, right? We're just going to, like, slice you down with our superior argument. Um, it's not about the kind of generative interchange that that is really sort of seeking understanding. You know, that's just that's just, that's that's just one quite superficial example. But there, there, there are so many ways in which in which this manifests. So now, look, if I start going down this route, I it's easy for us to sort of get a bit sort of depressive about it and think, <laughs> oh well, you know, we're so far from you know, being able to change things if this is the level at which it needs to be done. But actually, I think there's also, there's also something very positive about the change that ultimately needs to happen existing at this level, as well as the, oh God, we need to change this law and we need treaties to agree this internationally and all the stuff I used to work on. Um, because the interpersonal stuff can be, and even the, the intrapersonal stuff, you know, how we relate to our ourself and our multiple selves and how we are in ourselves we can practice it in a moment we're not going to change it any moment like we're not going to change it in a moment like let, let, let's get real about that there's we're not talking about quick fixes here but we can we can start the practice straight away and we can keep at the practice um and those the sort of changes that we can bring about in our ways of being with people can can be generative and can influence other people in all sorts of ways that you know are not planable and measurable on a sort of theory of change document that you know professional campaigners would have to put together but they're really really meaningful so yeah I think there's something positive in it as well I mean there's just so much just as you're talking about these things it's sparking so many more questions in my mind. I'm trying to be as attentive as possible to what you're saying and also be mindful of these other questions and also we've got like 10 minutes left so I'm thinking how best 
to use those 10 minutes that you're generously sharing with me. So I think I'm going to move into like the, the, the last questions to take as you will. Um, and kind of thinking back to an earlier part of our conversation today about the disenchantment of the world and our quest to find a meaningful place within it, maybe to start with that. Um, I like the, the deracination concept. How do we reroute ourselves in something else, in fertile territory? Is there a story, like a fairy tale, it could be a poem, a myth, even a quote that is present to you right now that really ignites you, that makes you feel more is possible or deeper is possible? I think it's not a specific quote. You know, I'm, I'm not, there are people who are really good at like, yeah. you know, like having a poem, bang, just like that, that they can bring out in a good moment. Bill Plotkin's books are really good like that. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know, no, no, but you know, they've always got like a roomy poem or a, like a David yeah. White verse or a Mary Oliver verse that they can just <laughs> chuck out. And I, and I love those when I see them and they mean something. For me, it's a book, actually. It's um, Clarissa Pinkola Estes, uh, uh, women who run with the wolves amazing um now look it, maybe this is a cliche because it's already a bestseller but actually i recommend this book all the time and loads of people haven't heard of it so it's always worth talking about you know it sold like two squillion copies uh <laughs> since she wrote it about 30 years ago so she's a jungian psycho psychoanalyst what did they call themselves jungians anyway a jungian therapist so jung was interested in archetypes these kind of cons these these sort of constellations of characteristics that sort of exist in the collective unconscious um, that manifest in sort of the oldest myths um, and tales and stories that humans have told each other and passed down for thousands of years. Um, so she's writing about this, this book, Women Who Run With The Wolves, is about the wild woman archetype. Um, and she revisits a bunch of fairy tales you know, including ones that, you know, in which ghastly things happen to yeah, girls and women. Like, I mean, the red shoes, Bluebeard. Oh. I mean, what the fuck? When you first read those, you're like, what is going on here? You know, yeah. this is just patriarchy. Where, where are the stories from before patriarchy? That's what I want. But actually, she excavates unbelievably powerful meaning from those stories um, that, uh, that are about women's intuition and ways of knowing um, and I experience, I reread this book regularly and every time I, I, something hits me, something lands that hasn't landed before. And it's like, honestly, it's like that book is like plugging myself into, into the earth. It's like this sort of instant transmission mm. of earth power. Like the same thing happens to me as when I go and sit under my favorite tree in the woods near here. It, it just... Yeah, it, it really it really gives me that, um, yeah, sort of in, a combination of kind of very exciting intellectual insight, but 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 way more than that. This this energy it taps into something a power that I I feel like I'm still really learning to manifest, um, and I read it differently to how I read it when I was in my late twenties. Um, I'm now in my mid forties, and it yeah it lands differently each time. So yes. Probably that. Wonderful. I, I read that also and it was just, um, it's just such a revolutionary way of thinking about fairy tales. So there's probably too many people to cite here, but if there was going to be one person that you could shed some light on that has influenced or inspired you or is doing work that you feel very passionately people need to know about, who might you name for people to check out? Uh, <laughs> this is, again, this is such a tricky question, isn't it? I think uh, Rianne Eisler is one of them. She wrote a book called The Chalice and the Blade, which is, 
you know, I'm really interested in frames, which are like the sort of the the unconscious or subconsciously held mental images that we use to sort of structure our understanding of the world and and the ideas that come in can kind of strengthen them um, or sort of weaken them. And there's quite a lot of talk in change making about frames and how we like narrative strategy and how you activate helpful frames. You know, for example, in practical terms, there are ways of talking about economic issues um, and equality and and refugees and migrants coming to the UK, that if you talk about them in certain ways in the media, you can activate people's negative frames. You know, you can make it worse. So, so there's, there's some very practical stuff to this work. But actually, the really, really deep frames in which we understand the world go way below that. And what Rianne Eisler's work talks about is the idea of cooperation culture versus dominator culture. Now, what has happened over a very long period, and this is about patriarchy and uh, sort of colonisation which flowed from it, is we've created a world in which a lot of people, most people think that domination, which is actually just a strategy, is human nature. It is the only aspect of human nature. We've created an economic model. We've created a politics. We've created a whole way of running the world based on it. Mm. Whereas actually it is just one human way of being. You know, this, this comes back to the conversation about interbeing and intersubjectivity, because actually we are, we are wired for both cooperation and domination. Yes, of course we are capable mm. of control and domination. Of course we are. It's activated in me on a daily basis when my children trigger me. Um, <laughs> I, I feel it in myself. Like, of course we have it. And we are also wired for cooperation. And really sort of like getting that straight, that deep frame at the basis of everything not everything I'm doing but like my understanding of like why it is I'm doing what I'm doing has been really helpful I ultimately want to do work that illuminates the possibilities um, of our cooperative nature and that that is something that we can shape we can shape society around it doesn't have to be that so Rianne Eisler's one yeah, I, I, I could do a great long list, but let's leave it at that for now. And then also, everyone listening, if you want more, read The Entangled Activist, because that is just, it's a goldmine of thinkers, stories, frames. I mean, it's just the entire territory mapped out. Or, well, I don't want to say the entire territory, but it's certainly a lot of the territory mapped out um, and lots of interesting questions raised. Yeah, I, I think I feel like I, I keep meaning to put together a list on my website of like the books that really... Mm. That, the thinkers that really sort of helped shape, helped shape me, um, you know, it would include Audre Lorde and Doris Lessing and Alistair McIntosh. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a, yeah, thank you. You've, you've reminded me that I need to get on with that. <laughs> so briefly then, um, is there a tool or a practice that you've used that you found really helpful in your work? It might just be sitting under your favourite tree in your local forest, but something simple that you found to be quite supportive of? you know, your journey? Yeah, so I I don't have a lot of time for contemplative practice um, as much as I would like. And so I feel like my practice at the moment is, I just alluded to it a moment ago, it's, I mean, the practice I'm engaged in, in any moment in which I'm not working generally, is is looking after and being with my small children hmm. and my practice at the moment is is being with whatever happens um in 
in a sort of present way. And I don't just mean being present as in, you know, being available and in the room with them or in this, wherever we are. I mean, not sort of recriminating and in the past and not constantly sort of trying to drag them and my own thoughts into the future by by thinking about how things should be or demanding that things should be in a certain way, which of course you have to balance with the practicalities of, <laughs> of just getting through the day. But what are the words for this? Yeah, catching my instinctive tendencies, which which are towards control, actually. That's what led me into activism. Mm. Like I really am trying to feel and recognise the the inner authoritarian in me. Um, I think there's one. I think that I think there's potentially one. I don't. I don't want to make sort of too many generalisations about other people. Um, but the way I was sort of raised and socialised, combined with my personality, that that's what's happened with me. Um, I can I, I can go into control mode, like command and control mode. Um, you know, there's lots of it in the culture too. Mm. Uh, but I feel it in myself and being regularly triggered <laughs> by all the things that go on is just like the most unbelievably confronting regular practice of mm. being in relationship and keeping connection and not going into that and I don't always succeed and every time I do I do, when I do I don't always have time to even reflect on it because the next thing's happening but occasionally I'm like all oh, right yeah that that is a practice mm. um and I feel like I'm learning from it a lot but yeah it doesn't have a name and it's not somebody's <laughs> tradition so yeah thank you for that question catching the inner control freak yeah <laughs> I think I could benefit a lot from yeah. that I also go and get in the river I go and say I go and say hello to mother river most mornings oh. and that's a uh, that's a practice too I'm desperate to move somewhere where I can have a river I can just be with that sounds such a delicious way to just spend time well it's a it's a very great luxury yeah so as someone who focuses on a lot of the challenges that we face and a lot of the, the dark underbelly of ourselves as individuals, but also collectively what we can create as a human network or species, how do you orient yourself towards hope on dark days? Yeah, this is a really good question. I, um, I was in a conversation with somebody yesterday and she was saying, oh, I don't like to think about hope. I prefer to think about courage, <laughs> which I thought was quite interesting. Mm. But... Um, I think it's something about letting go of the idea that it's going to be me saving the world hmm. and, and instead just using the time and energy and resources I have got to do what I can. Um, I've been reading Maggie Nelson's book on freedom and came across this very compelling idea that we're kind of stuck in the bite. You know, when we think about climate and ecology and what's happening, we kind of get stuck in this kind of absolutely frozen binary of like, well, either everything's fucked or it's not fucked. Yeah. And, and so, <laughs> and, so and, and it can leave us really, really paralysed. I, I, I was really taken by the sort of fucked, not fucked binary. So because if, it's, if you're in that and you think you've got to do something towards it, you kind of, you're like, oh, my God, it's me that's got to do it. And that's, and that's too much. And, of course, if it's fucked, then you lose hope altogether. So, yeah, yeah. so really, actually, because however bad things get, however bad things already are and however bad things get... Any of us at any moment can do something to make things less shit, to make more life more beautiful in any moment, which is such a different approach to the kind of hope that is required to engage on a sort of huge, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to stop this enormous thing happening. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't try and 
stop this enormous thing happening. You know, like the British government has just decided to hand out some more oil licenses for drilling in the North Sea here in, you know, the year of our Lord 2022. That's insane. I mean, come on. So there are, there are some people who are absolutely going at that at the moment. So it, there's a sort of funny nuance. Again, it's another of these sort of entangled activism paradoxes where it's like, yeah, of course we have a goal. We don't want to let go of the goal. But, but if we go at it with the idea of a practice and yes, I'm going to do what I can, rather than having to like hoist the whole burden onto our own shoulders, mm. that somehow allows me to, to be quite hopeful that we can, do, we can do things, we can do some things, and it is worth doing them. And it's interesting when we, when we think about like, I have to do everything, I have to do it myself. And one image that I think comes really well to mind, and I find that images sometimes are better, for me at least, uh, is sort of, I find them useful in stopping all of the arguments that go in my head, like quieting the, the noise. So this idea that if ever I get into that trap of thinking, oh, well, I need to do something more. Am I doing enough? I see myself as one little jigsaw puzzle in a massive jigsaw that I can't even see the edges of. And I just think, no, but this piece is important, but it connects to all the other pieces. And then I feel better than, all right, what does my piece need to do? <laughs> and just having that image, or sometimes I think of it as a tapestry, you know, you're just one thread. What can one thread possibly do? But one thread can do a lot and it can weave a great span and contribute to the most beautiful unfolding of a much bigger story. So I find that those two images are powerful ways of just stopping that kind of voice. Yeah, I really like those. Thank oh, you. Thanks. <laughs> so finally then, if people want to learn more about your work and your thinking, where are the best places for them to find you? All right. Well, I've got a website, which is anthealawson.uk. Um, I wish I had more time to blog and I keep having aspirations of doing so. But there's a bit on there and you can certainly find the book on there. And a few of my talks are up there, podcasts and so on. Again, I'm, I'm on Instagram. I'm not like I'm not there every day. God, what is my Instagram? I, it's this, let me just check what is my Instagram because it's not the same as my Twitter. I know this is, this is why I'm not brilliant at this. Uh, so on Instagram, I'm Anthea Lawson UK. Uh, and on Twitter, I'm at AnthLawson1. Wonderful. Anthea, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's a real honour to be on the podcast with you. And I've really appreciated the, uh, the depth of your questions. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and review as it helps to reach new ears. And for more information, you can visit natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And you can also reach out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Natalie Nahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.